Welcome to One Question with Pastor Adam. And I am Adam, and I am pastor to believers and to doubters, to unfaithful Christians and to faithful atheists. And Jesus wasn't afraid of questions, and so neither are we here at One Question with Pastor Adam. So let's go, people. Uh, I should say, Pastor Adam is a product of the Raven Foundation, and uh, you can check out more at Raven where uh, we, our goal is uh, to help show how uh, religion, uh, you know, religion is associated with violence and Jesus and so much of the Bible are actually anti-violent. And uh, we are here to show that religion uh, can help us move forward in a more peaceful and loving world uh, without all of that uh, violence. And so we're trying to uh, disassociate, disconnect uh, religion from violence and get us to see what's at the heart of all of this, which is Jesus says is to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? So uh, that is the work of the Raven Foundation. And uh, so uh, we are here at one question with a big big question for us from this last week, uh, which is, can women or should women uh, be preachers, teachers, and leaders in uh, in churches? Uh, you may have heard uh, that the Southern Baptist Convention this last week disfellowshipped. <laughs> How's that for a word? Disfellowshipped five churches from its membership in the Southern Baptist Convention because they, wait for it, have women preachers. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Hi, Emily and Karen. Uh, and uh, yeah, Emily, good to see you. Good to see you. And uh, so there is this uh, controversy over... Uh, over whether women should be leaders and teachers and preachers. Uh, this controversy is uh, was dealt with 2,000 years ago, and the answer is yes, women can be, should be, some women are called to be by God, uh, preachers, teachers, and leaders in the church. <laughs> this was dealt with 2,000 years ago, and we still have some people, uh, the patriarchy, trying to come in and uh, tell women that they are not gifted in this area because they are women. And this goes against the early church. Uh, this distinction between men and women being able to be leaders in the church goes against the gospel message. And I'm going to, I'm going to lay that out for you today. Uh, and it may take me a while. I hope you're strapped in. <laughs> It shouldn't have to take me a while. Uh, it should be obvious, but the patriarchy uh, continues to uh, bring up its uh, ugly head and do its patriarchy thing. So, uh, Lita, good to see you. Uh, absolutely, yes, they should be. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, here we go. Uh, oh, okay. So, this all started because the Southern Baptist Convention disfellowshipped five congregations from its fellowship. Uh, now, I did a little bit of research on this. It's uh, interesting. The biggest one that they disfellowshipped was Saddleback Church in uh, California, in the Los Angeles area. You may have heard of Saddleback. It's one of the biggest 
uh, mega churches in the country. Uh, it's also was pastored for a long time by a man named Rick Warren, who wrote a book mm, 20 years ago uh, called The Purpose Driven Life. It was a huge, massive bestseller. And uh, so you may you may have heard of Rick Warren and uh, Saddleback Church there. But in 2021, uh, just a couple years ago, Rick Warren ordained three women to be pastors of Saddleback Church. And so the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, got wind of this and started doing, you know, its thing and investigating and decided that uh, Saddleback should not be part of the Southern Baptist Convention because they have women preachers. Now, they uh, they went and looked at some other congregations, too, and disfellowshipped five uh, throughout the country. Another one was uh, is called Fern Creek Baptist Church. Uh, it's not a mega church, uh, but it is in Louisville, Kentucky. And it has been led by the Reverend Linda Barnes Popham uh, for the last, at least the last 30 years. She's been at that church for 40 years. She's been the main leader, uh, preacher, pastor at uh, Fern Creek Baptist Church for 30 years. Now, uh, I listened to, you can Google uh, NPR and Reverend Linda Barnes Popham, uh, and you can read or listen to her story uh, that they interviewed her about there. And it's it's very interesting. She's like, I've been doing this here as a member of the Southern Baptist Convention for 40 years. Why are they coming after us now? We've been doing this for so long. Women have been in the Southern Baptist Convention for so long, preaching and teaching and leading. Why are they coming after us now? Uh, she says that it might be because of, you know, clergy sexual abuse scandal and trying to flip the script and move on to something else. Uh, she's not really sure. But uh, I listened I, or I did a little more research and the Associated Press. <laughs> this is hilarious. Uh interviewed or, or reached out to the three other churches uh, that were disfellowshipped. <laughs> this is so good. And a couple of them were like, we had no idea we were part of the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> they were like, we thought we were non-denominational church. <laughs> so uh, one of them was like, this is a badge of honor. Man, wouldn't it be great if the Southern ba Baptist Convention was like, uh, came to I was going to say my church, any, any of our churches. And we're like, we're going to disfellowship you. We were like, great. That's awesome. <laughs> so they were like, this is a badge of honor that we've been disfellowshipped by the Southern Baptist convention that we never belonged to in the first place. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's funny. Um, so yeah, the SBC is now out kicking kicking out churches that never belonged to them in the first place. Well, that's, that's where we are these days, I guess. So <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, here you go. Uh, you know, conservatives are like railing against cancel culture and here's the Southern Baptist convention canceling churches that don't even belong to them. So that's fantastic. So, all right. So, uh, if you've got questions, comments about this, then, uh, you can bring them up, um, here. So that's, that's fun. Uh, so I wanted to go kind of go through, uh, this in 
in the Bible uh, and lay it out for you about women in the church, because there's a lot of bad information uh, when it comes to the Bible and leadership pertaining to women uh, in the church. So uh, if you go and listen to that NPR interview with um, Reverend Linda Barnes Popham, she will, you will hear her say uh, it's like four minutes or something. So she can't get into a whole lot of depth, but you will hear her say that uh, the Southern Baptist convention is against the priesthood of all believers, apparently. So Linda, uh, Reverend Popham, cements her God-given ability to be a leader of a church within this framework, that we are called, if you are a Christian, into, you are baptized into the priesthood of all believers. All believers are ordained into some kind of priesthood. And Reverend Popham says that this priesthood is not uh, exclusively the right of men or women. It is a human uh, priesthood where we are all on the same level. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. Uh, in Galatians, Paul says that there is uh, Paul says that there is neither male nor uh, female, male and female. Uh, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So these distinctions uh, that Paul is bringing up lead us to the priesthood of all believers where you these distinctions while they uh while while they exist should not lead us to uh having them be absolutes in who can do what and who can't do what right that's what the priesthood of all believers is we are all on the same level that's how reverend uh Popham is understanding her call into the ministry that she has had for 30 or 40 years. So uh, I am going to take us a little bit into the Hebrew scriptures and then move us quickly into the New Testament. Now, when it comes to the uh, Hebrew scriptures, there are there are women who have important leadership roles throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And I want to kind of emphasize just two of them for you today. If you go and look at uh, the book of Judges in chapter four, you will come across very quickly a woman named Deborah. Deborah is a prophetess, and we are told she is the wife of Lipodeth, uh, Lap Lapidith. I don't, I have no idea. We, we never hear about Lapidith. We only hear about Lapidith's wife, who is this megastar Deborah in the book of Judges. Deborah was a judge of Israel. Now, when we think of judges today, this uh, we think of someone who interprets laws and casts judgment upon people. That was part of it. But Deborah was, in the book of Judges, that is not the sole role of a judge. Judges, in the book of Judges, <laughs> were uh, political leaders. Whenever, uh, so this was at the time when Israel didn't have a king. Uh, and so, uh, 
judges would rise up and lead the nation of Israel whenever things got uh, bad. A judge would rise up called by God uh, and would rise up and lead the nation. Well, here, one of the judges is a woman named Deborah. And here is what uh, chapter four says. I'll just read you a little bit. Uh, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah. Apparently, Deborah was so important that she got her own palm tree. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you, judges, for that. Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, and the Israelites came to her for judgment. Now, if you are a Christian and you have this view that men, uh, that women should not teach in church and even in what first Timothy, it says that a woman should not, uh, have a woman should not have, uh, um, authority over a man. That's the phrase in first Timothy. We'll get to there later. First Timothy says a woman should not have authority over a man. Well, guess what? Here's Deborah. So Deborah is, uh, here in the Bible, the word of God, right? Deborah is here uh, between Ramah and the Bethel uh, in the hill of Ephraim. And uh, men, Israelite men, come to her for judgment. Now the men, <clears throat> okay, here's what happens next. Uh, she sent and summoned a general named Barak and said to Barak, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you and Barak stops her instantly and says, how dare you command me? Because God cannot speak through you because you're a woman and you are not supposed to have authority over a man. Is that what Barak says? No, of course not. Barak says, yes, ma'am. I will, I will do that because God has called you to be a leader of Israel, the people of God, because that's what God does sometimes. Sometimes God calls men to be leaders over the people of God, and sometimes God calls women to be leaders over the people of God. Can I get an amen? Come on, people. So this is, this is like, this is right here in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 22 and 2 Corinthians chapter 34, I want to tell you about uh, one of another woman in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, this is one of my favorites. Uh, her name is Huldah. She's another prophet. Yet, prophets teach about the word of God. There are women prophets throughout the Hebrew scriptures. We often don't hear of them, partly because the patriarchy doesn't want us to hear about them, because the patriarchy wants us to believe that God can't speak through women. Uh, but here we go, right? Uh, so this is the prophetess Huldah. She is a, alive during the realm, the, during the reign of King Josiah and the high priest Hilkiah. And it just so happens that during uh, this time, Josiah and Hilkiah find the book of the law <laughs> in the temple, Whew, the book of the law. The, most people think, most scholars think that this is the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it was missing uh, because Moses had written it and all of a sudden they found it. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny because uh, Moses didn't write the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, somebody wrote it up and put it in the temple and said, oh, hey, look what we found. <laughs> book of Moses. <laughs> anyway, that's a, story for another podcast. But uh, anyway, so the King King Josiah and the high priest Hilkiah find this book, Deuteronomy, 
they don't know what it means. They they can read it, but they're like, what is this about? I have no idea. And so they look for uh, other people to be able to interpret it and uh, help them understand what Deuteronomy is saying. But none of the men can figure it out. And so what do they do? They call the prophetess Hulda. And Hulda comes and Hulda explains the whole thing to them. Now, as Hulda is explaining it to them, you know, you, you know what happens. The men say, how dare you teach here in the temple? You're not supposed to do that because God says women can't teach. Of course, they don't say that. Come on, come on. Women can teach in the church and in the temple. How about that? So uh, those are two examples from the uh, Hebrew scriptures uh, that I just love. I love those examples. So when it comes to the New Testament and Christianity, I I know that a lot of my progressive friends don't, don't uh, emphasize this like I do, uh, but I love the resurrection stories. I think the resurrection stories are the most important stories in, in the Bible for Christians. Uh, and, you know, we have, I think I talked two weeks ago or so about how progressives kind of struggle with resurrection stories, whether you take them literally or figuratively or whatever, I don't really care. As long as you get the essence, the story, what the meaning behind the resurrection is getting at. And part of that meaning is this in the gospel, in all of the gospels, the men, the men mess up. The men don't follow Jesus to the cross. Who are those who follow Jesus to the cross? Who are the ones who are most faithful to Jesus in his time of need? It's the women. Who is the one who is there at the resurrection when Jesus is here resurrected? Who, who is there? It's Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's the one who is there. The men are all off doing whatever the men were doing at the time, right? <laughs> not being faithful to Jesus, not going with Mary, who's the faithful one, to the tomb. And Mary is there. She's weeping through these tears in her eyes. She sees someone. She thinks that this person is the gardener of the, of the, of the tomb, of the um, cemetery or whatever it is. And Mary looks at him and Jesus says to her, Mary, and Mary recognizes that Jesus is in her midst. She says, Rabuni, and she recognizes Jesus. They have this brief conversation. Uh, she wants to hold on to Jesus. Jesus is like, don't hold on to me because you got work to do. And what is the work that Mary has to do? She is to go tell the men about the resurrection. This is so important because here, Jesus is treating Mary as the apostle of the resurrection to the apostles. Mary is the apostle to the apostles. How about that? Mary is the one who teaches the apostles about the resurrection of Jesus. And you're going to tell me that women can't teach men? Come on. This, is, this was dealt with 2,000 years ago. Why are, like, a lot of the SBC, some of the research that I've done, has, uh, has been saying that women teaching men is a 
modern heresy that just liberal progressive Christians want to do because we're wimps and blah, 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 toxic masculinity, shut up, uh, right? <laughs> um, this is where Christianity goes right from the beginning. Women are teaching men about the most important event in Christian history. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Jesus, without the resurrection, Jesus is this nice teacher, he's, but he's a failed Messiah. Messiahs, think about it. A Messiah is a political leader. Uh, and if you are a successful political leader, you're not going to get killed by your enemies. That's just how it works. Jesus is killed by his enemies. Whether you take the resurrection literally or metaphorically, I whatever, again, I don't care. But the resurrection, the story that they tell about the resurrection changes everything. And without that story, there is no Christianity. It just dies with Jesus and he's he's like another great teacher. Put that aside the literalism, the metaphoricalness of the resurrection. Put it aside for the moment. That's a sticky wicket I don't want to get into right now. The point is that Jesus chooses a woman to be the first teacher of the most important event in Christian history. Mary Magdalene is the first teacher, preacher, proclaimer of the resurrection, and she goes and teaches a bunch of men. <laughs> That's deserving another amen in the chat section. Oh, this is this changes everything. I mean, you may have heard uh, that in the ancient world, please, this is not just the Jewish ancient world. This is the ancient world, and you still see it a lot today. This is what the Southern Baptist Convention is dealing with. Uh, you still see it today. Women in the ancient world uh, weren't seen as trustworthy, uh, weren't, were seen as hysterical. And what does Jesus do? The most, he, the most important person to teach the resurrection is a woman to a bunch of men who don't get it, who still don't get it, right? So uh, there, there we have it. There we have it. That that is all you really need, need, but there is so much more <laughs> to talk about when it comes to this topic. Before we get to the resurrection, there are a lot of other uh, passages where we see how Jesus treats women in, in his community while he is uh, before his death, right? Uh, so in Luke chapter 10, we have the story where Jesus goes to the house of Mary and Martha. And uh, Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet, listening to what he has to say, listening to what Jesus is teaching. And Martha is in the, uh, Martha is out preparing food. Uh, and Martha comes to Jesus and she's upset that Mary, her sister, is not helping her in the kitchen. And uh, Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Uh, and Mary has chosen the better part. Now, what is the better part? Here's the point. 
of this story. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. In first century Judaism, uh, if you are sitting at the foot of a rabbi, it means that you are a disciple. It means that you are learning from your rabbi. Jesus is their rabbi, their teacher. Now, you are not, if you are sitting at the foot, at the feet of your rabbi, you are not just there to learn something cool for yourself. You are there sitting at the feet of your rabbi so that you can go out and teach other people what your rabbi has taught you. That's what discipleship is all about. You sit at the feet of your rabbi because you are meant to become a rabbi to other people. Mary here is meant to become a disciple, a teacher, a rabbi to other people. That's how Jesus teaches. That's how Jesus treats Mary in this moment. So this like uh, rivalry or this uh, conflict between Mary and Martha is worth contemplating, but don't miss the point. That's often where this where this story goes. Uh, but but don't miss the point that Jesus here is treating Mary as one of his full grown important disciples, and he's not like, "Sorry, Mary, you're a woman." And in about twenty years, there's going to be this letter called First Timothy, and it's going to say women can't have authority or teach men. So so clearly. We have to go by that, Mary. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say anything like that. He treats her as a disciple because Mary is a disciple. Come on, let's go. Why? Why? Okay. Uh, so here's another one. In John chapter 4, we get the story of Jesus going to the uh, Samaritans, and he meets the woman at the well. Mm, this is such such a great story. And here's what I want you to get from Jesus uh, and the woman at the well when it comes to women teaching, right? Jesus goes to the woman at the well. It's midday, uh, and Jesus asks her for water. Get some water. Jesus is like, I'm the living water, blah, blah, blah. You know, John, very mysterious. What is Jesus talking about? Nobody knows uh, except for this woman knows. <laughs> this is the This is the first person, uh, this is not the first person that Jesus meets in the gospel of John. He's got, the, he's got the men, uh, with him, the disciples with him, but this is the, the first person outside. And, uh, this is even a Samaritan, like this is one of the others. Not only is this a woman, but this is a Samaritan woman. So she is an other Jesus has this conversation with her and she ends up saying, wow, you have told me everything that I have ever done in my life, which is a way of her saying, my life makes sense now. It, all of the pieces of the puzzle of my life are fitting together because of what this person Jesus is telling me. And so what does she do? She goes to town and she tells all the people of the town about Jesus. This is why this Samaritan woman is so important. She is the first person to proclaim the gospel. This is a Samaritan woman. She is the first person before, before the men, before Peter, 
James, John, any of them, before Mary and the resurrection, before anybody else, it is this Samaritan woman who proclaims the gospel of Jesus to others. And she's very successful, actually. (laughs) Can women teach about Jesus? Yeah, and this is the first person who does teach about Jesus, and she is incredibly successful. She goes off to the town, and the people of the town, the men of the town, are like, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And then they meet Jesus, and they're like, hey, uh, we heard from this woman that you are pretty great, and we'd like for you to stay with us for an extra two days so that we can learn from you. This is all a bit of a paraphrase. You can read the story in John chapter four. And uh, Jesus is like, okay, let's hang out. And so then the people of the town are like, okay, we believed because of this woman told us, but now we believe because of our experience with Jesus. So they believe because of both things. The woman brought the men of that town to Jesus through her teachings about her experience with Jesus. And she was very successful. She got it. And she led others to get it too. Oh, man. All right, here's another one. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get a story about a woman who anoints Jesus. You remember this story. They they tell it kind of differently. This is Jesus nearing the end of his life. All four of the Gospels tell this story. And they tell it a little bit differently. But what ends up happening is... This woman comes to Jesus, he's hanging out in someone's house, and she knows what is about to happen to Jesus, that he's going to be going to the cross and he's going to die. And she is weeping. Uh, She's sad that this man that she looks up to is about to die. And she takes oil and she anoints. She anoints him, right? In some of the... Uh, gospels, she anoints his head. Uh, I think it's in the gospel of John where she anoints his feet and cleans his feet with her hair, rubs, rubs her hair on his feet. Um, what is this getting at to anoint? Jesus says that she, uh, the disciples are like, what's happening here? What is this woman doing? Some, some of them say, um, uh, we could have used this money to help the poor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And so Jesus says, leave her alone. She has anointed me for my burial. Okay, so there are a couple of things that we need to get out of this. The SBC needs to leave women alone because Jesus said so. Can I get an amen in the chat section? Let's go, people. So Jesus says, leave her alone. Why? Because she's, she's doing the work of God. She is doing what God calls her to do. And what is she doing? Do you know who it is who has the role of anointing someone for burial? Who has the role of anointing someone for burial? A priest. This woman takes upon herself the role of a priest And Jesus says that she is right to do so. He even says to her and to uh, the men who, again, just don't get it. 
Wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Here we have a woman who is taking on the role of a priest for Jesus. You know, even Jesus needed a priest every once in a while, right? Even Jesus needed someone to support him, minister to him through his experience. We are, oh, not even Jesus could do it alone. He needed this woman to tell him and support him and anoint him for burial. And, and Jesus says, do not stop her from doing it. This woman, the role of a priest. Uh, so let's uh, let's go to Paul because Paul tends to be the one who uh, gets get, who seems to be the troublemaker in this, <laughs> but he's not. And I'm gonna I'm gonna explain to you why. And uh, we'll get to some comments and questions here pretty soon. Uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, Paul, the, kind of like the uh, what would you say the the rule of Paul or the uh, the I don't want to call it the law of Paul. <laughs> But uh, kind of the, the go-to of Paul, you might say, is Galatians 3.28. Talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, because of Paul's experience uh, with Jesus, he's able to say that there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's ultimate mission is that these these distinctions these categories that we create while they matter these these categories matter to us they are part of our identity part of who we are but they should not be identities that lead us over and against one another when we so for paul there is no longer Jew or Greek, but Paul's whole mission was to get the Greeks or the Gentiles to be in the in the in the community, in the people of God, in in the in the church. That was his whole mission as Gentiles, as Greeks. That was his whole mission. So what he's saying here is that uh, these categories that we end up forming to unite us over and against one another are washed away because of what Jesus has done for us. That all of these categories, think of the most important categories. Like I, I live in the United States. I'm an American. It's part of who I am for good or for evil. Uh, I shouldn't say I'm an American. I am uh, United. I'm, I'm a citizen of the United States. <laughs> That's who I am. Uh, that is part of my identity for good or for ill, right? Uh, I can't just get rid of that. Uh, it's part of who I am, but it is not something. But if I use it as something that leads me over and against somebody who's Canadian, then Paul would say, you are not living into the best of your identity. You are not living into the gospel. Because when you live into the gospel, your identity as uh, white, I'm a white male, uh, who lives in the United States. That should not be my primary identity. And I shouldn't use any of that identity over and against someone else, not even my identity as a Christian. 
that's where Christian nationalism goes so far off the rails, uh, is that it uses its identity to be over and against others, where Paul here is saying, don't use your maleness or your femaleness. Don't use your gender category to be over and against someone else. This is the key to understanding what Paul is trying to get at. So when you use, when the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, is using maleness as a category to uh, put down or to marginalize or to uh, say that women can't have leadership or a voice in the church, it is going against Paul's whole mission. This is Paul's uh, fundamental creed <laughs> in Genesis 3.28. How does this work out for Paul? Well, in Romans chapter 16, this is maybe the most important chapter in, in Romans, uh, we find where Paul ordains women to leadership roles, or Paul uh, acknowledges, he doesn't even acknowledge it. It's just something that is in, in the early Christian community. So in Romans chapter 16, Paul says uh, that he commends to the Romans uh, our sister Phoebe, uh, who Paul calls a deacon of the church at Senecria. I probably didn't pronounce that right. That's okay. Uh, so Phoebe is a deacon of one of the early churches. If you've got a study Bible, uh, it will probably have a footnote where it says deacon. Deacon is one of these like weird words. What does that even mean? Uh, deacon for Paul. When Paul uses the word deacon, it means minister. It means minister of the gospel. Phoebe is a minister of the gospel. What does that mean? She's a teacher. She's a leader of one of the early churches. And when Paul commends Phoebe to the church in Rome, it is highly likely that what Paul means by that, in the ancient world, if you were to commend someone, you would send your letter with that person. He is sending his letter with Phoebe in order for Phoebe to read that letter to the church in Rome and also answer any questions that people have about the letter to the Romans. Paul sends what turns out to be his most important letter with a woman to the church in Rome for her to explain it to the Romans. <laughs> to the men and to the women. Paul assumes that women can teach and preach and lead churches because here is Phoebe doing just that. In Romans chapter 16, he talks about other women too. Uh, he talks about uh, Andronicus and Junia. Junia, uh, it's likely that this is a married couple. Andronicus is a man, and Junia is a woman. Uh, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles. Now, early on in church history, uh, men see that Junia, a woman, this is a woman's name, is prominent among the apostles. Junia was well known in the ancient Roman world as a woman's name. And so what did some within the early church who went against uh, what 
where Paul was leading in this very egalitarian way, uh, some in the early church read that and were like, no, we can't have that. We can't have women. And so they added uh, in English what we call an S to Junius, making it a man's name. But do you know who we have no evidence uh, being called Junius in the ancient Roman world, including the ancient Roman Christian world? No men are ever called Junius. There is no... There is no evidence that any man was ever named Junius in the ancient Roman world. Junia is a woman's name. And there is textual evidence that early Christians uh, manipulated this text because they didn't want some, didn't want women to be known as prominent among the apostles. Paul says that this woman, Junia, is not just an apostle. She is prominent among the apostles. And what do apostles do? They go out and they teach people about the gospel. In Acts chapter 18, we hear the story of Paul and a woman named Priscilla and a man named Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, that's a that's great band name right there. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. They had a business together where they made tents. And uh, they end up, Paul comes to their town and they end up following Paul, Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, Paul, they learn how to be missionaries from Paul. They follow Paul on his missions and they support him and they learn from him and they become missionaries. And what many scholars point out is that whenever Priscilla and Aquila are uh, are, are put together, their names are put together in the New Testament. It's always Priscilla who's first, followed by her husband Aquila. And what many, uh, many New Testament scholars say is that this is strange. Usually the man comes first, right? Even today, uh, 2,000 years later, uh, you would often, uh, when you're writing to a, a married couple who happens to be a man and a woman, uh, you might put the man first for stupid patriarchal reasons. But here in the New Testament, the woman comes first. Why? New Testament scholars say Paul is making a point that Priscilla here is the lead when it comes to the missionary work of Priscilla and Aquila. She's the leader of this thing. Whew, man. All right. So uh, another one is Philippians chapter four, verses two through three, where Paul says, I urge Eudoia and uh, Syntyche, botched those names, I'm sure. Uh, but these are two women. Uh, and Paul says, uh, I urge them to be of the same mind. And um, they, he says that they have been loyal companions to me. Help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel. These women, Paul says, have struggled beside Paul. Paul has women beside him struggling for the work of the gospel. What is the work of the gospel for Paul? It is teaching and preaching. It is spreading the good news of Jesus. And these women are right alongside of him. Paul is not ahead of these women. He doesn't treat himself as he is better than these women. He says that they are right alongside of me, preaching and teaching. For any church to say that women cannot be right alongside of any other man in preaching and teaching and leading congregations goes against 
how Paul lived his life and what Jesus did with his life. It is anti-gospel. Come on, let's go. Okay, so uh, just a couple of words about the uh, the passages that many people use uh, in order to silence women. Uh, in there are very few. Uh, we'll start with First Corinthians chapter eleven because this is the First Corinthians is where uh, uh, people will often use words of Paul. Uh, to silence women in the church. But here's what it happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 and in chapter 14, you get different messages that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is a really weird chapter, but there's one point that I want you to get when it comes to this conversation about women leading and teaching and preaching in the church. Paul says, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head. You would be praying or prophesying in a church, by the way. Uh, So any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. All sorts of cultural weirdness that we don't particularly understand as 21st century people living in the world. Okay, Uh, this is first century stuff that is hard for, I've I've done a lot of research on this. Scholars are like, ah, we don't really know. But he says, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. So here, Paul is giving kind of rules for how to pray and prophesy. He's giving rules to men and to women. Now, I just answered this question for you. Where would people pray and prophesy? In the church. Paul here is assuming that yes, men are praying and prophesying, teaching in the church. And he's also assuming that women are praying and prophesying in the church in the same way. Just a little difference with the head covering for some reason, right? <laughs> um, so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 is assuming that women are speaking in church and that men are listening. He's assuming that men are speaking in the church and women are listening. Women and men listening to one another. Who knew? Isn't that great? Well, a little later on, three chapters later on, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, we get a little different message from Paul. Now, if you've got a study Bible like mine or a, a lot of other Bibles too, not necessarily study Bibles, this passage will be in parentheses. Why? Because scholars think that this was not written by Paul. Why? Because it contradicts everything Paul did in his life that we've been talking about. And also it contradicts what Paul says just three chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in parentheses, it says, As in all churches of the saints, women should be silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, uh, we've talked a little bit about this in a previous episode that I did, Paul the Progressive, with Eric Smith. And 
Uh, Eric is a uh, professor of New Testament, uh, a, a scholar of Paul. And Eric, along with a lot of other scholars, and the reason that this is in parentheses is precisely because of this, that uh, a lot of scholars believe, uh, and there's textual evidence for this when you go back to the ancient manuscripts, that this passage was added into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 by a later scribe who wanted to who wanted a patriarchal church who wanted to go um, against what Paul and Jesus were getting at. So that's why it's in parentheses. Uh, if you, my, when I was in seminary, my New Testament professor, when we came to this passage, uh, said, uh, just take out uh, these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and read this chapter as if those verses weren't there. And it reads perfectly smooth. It's as if somebody just inserted these uh, verses in here about women being silent in church. Um, so I think that this passage is not authentic to Paul and that it, it was added because it goes against everything that Paul did in his life and what he taught. Uh, the last passage that I want to talk at talk about, and then we'll get to some comments and questions if we've got them, is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Uh, this is another passage. Uh, scholars call it pseudo-Pauline. Uh, uh, it is a letter that uh, claims to be written by Paul, but a lot of letters in the ancient world uh, were, what's the word, uh, claimed to have been written by someone but weren't written by that person. Uh, this was a way for somebody to write a letter and instantly get, you know, cred. <laughs> this is the street cred that uh, the author of 1 Timothy was trying to get. Uh, to Timothy uh, from Paul. Yeah, no, it wasn't written by Paul. Uh, most scholars, it's it's got a different writing style than, than the letters that we know were written by Paul. Uh, and it says things that Paul wouldn't have said in his life, including what first Timothy says about, uh, it says, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Uh, now, um, I just think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. I think that the biblical evidence goes against this passage in First Timothy. Uh, and, you know, there, there are ways that you can interpret this passage uh, in First Timothy uh, in context, uh, in the historical context that First Timothy was written in. So First Timothy was written to a group of people in Ephesus. Ephesus was known primarily for uh, its uh, um, religions associated with, uh, I think it's the goddess Diana. Uh, it was the uh, great temple to Diana. Is it Persephone? Is that the same, uh, same goddess? Uh, it, it was the temple associated with the goddess Diana. And it was the big game in town. Uh, it was uh, primarily for women. Uh, men weren't 
really allowed to associate uh, or to go to this place. And so there might be kind of a rivalry with this author uh, who's writing to this group, the uh, this group of Christians in Ephesus, uh, where, oh, uh, those women going to that temple, uh, we'll show them who's boss. They're not allowed to, they're not allowed to come to us and, and talk, right? Um, the, some scholars think that maybe some of the women who came from the, that temple, uh, also came to the church and were trying to, uh, teach different things or, or whatever. And so that's why this person is so against women speaking up in this particular church. So there are ways that you can kind of contextualize this. I, whatever, I just think it's wrong and stupid and goes against what the Bible is getting at and what Paul is getting at. So, um, there you have it. There you have it. Women throughout the Bible should preach and teach, uh, the people of God. Old Testament, New Testament. Here we go. Jesus, Paul. Here we go. All right. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, we'll get to some uh, comments and questions here and see what we got. Uh, if a woman, uh, Emily says, if a woman can raise male preachers, then are they not pastors in their own right? I think that's a Fair way to look at it, Emily. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Uh, let's see. Luke says, we just need leaders that won't poison their people. Well, that would be good too. Yes. <laughs> let's not poison one another. Uh, uh, Luke says, patriarchy demands poison into the bloodstream of children. Um, yeah, let's not do that either. That's that's not good. <laughs> um um, uh, we could have, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to there, Luke, but, uh, we could have better drinking water. So that, that would be good. Um, uh, the heteronormative nuclear family puts us all under constant surveillance. That's true. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot, Luke. You're, you're on top of it as always, Luke. The Bible does have a lot of problems and contradictions. It happens. Yeah. The Bible is written by humans trying to figure out what God is doing in the world. Sometimes humans get it right. Sometimes humans get it wrong. I, I'm often like, you know, uh, another passage is that Second Timothy passage 316, 2 Timothy 316, where it says that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God, right? Uh, my I, One way to look at that is that, uh, you know, the first person, uh, the first human, the Adam, uh, was also God breathed. And we know that that person didn't always get it right. Despite being God breathed, God inspired. Uh, and the Bible, I, I'm happy to say the Bible doesn't always get it right. Uh, that's partly where I'm going with the first Timothy passage, uh, where it goes against the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, how Jesus and Paul treated women. Uh, and I think that that, we can, can try to contextualize it. We can try to understand it. But ultimately, that passage, if it's saying women should always forever be silent in churches, is wrong. I say that's wrong. Uh, Jessica says, a woman. Let's go. Yes, love it. Uh 
All right. Greetings. Greetings, princess. Uh, Luke says the meaning is that if you take a teaspoon of turmeric, uh, your illnesses might instantly be cured. I'm tired. Luke is tired. Okay. <laughs> Luke. Oh, I love it. I have no idea where this is coming from. Uh, but, uh, let's see. Let's see. Okay. Juan. Oh, Juan, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. Two most important uh, news about Jesus's life, birth, and resurrection was given from God to the testimony of a woman and the shepherds. Oh, Juan. Yes. In both cases, any of them could offer testimony according to the Jewish law. It's, oh wait, uh, it's easy to understand uh, then with Jesus, God is putting everything upside down, putting the last as the first. Oh, Juan, so beautiful. Nicely, nicely said, Juan. Love it. Uh, hi, Joshua. Greetings to you, my friend. Uh, Phil, glad it's informative. Yeah. Um, uh, Joshua says, something tells me women are very incredible slash important in the Bible and responsible for beginning uh, God's message. Yes. Um, I, you know, it's goes back to John chapter four, where, um, it's the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, who is the first person responsible to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Right. Ah, oh, so good. Uh, oh, Karen says, setting aside your various identities for your common humanity and unity. I, is that getting back to Galatians chapter three, where Paul says that? Yes. I think that's a great way to summarize that Karen is, uh, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for you all one in Christ. Jesus, Karen says, setting aside your various identities for your common humanity and unity. So good. Uh, Karen also says those pseudo Pauline letters really diverge from what we know of Paul's treatment of women in the church. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, last statement from Karen, the pseudo Pauline letters diverge. Oh, it's the same statement. Yeah. But that's it. That's it. That's the that is one of the key points when it comes to First Timothy and those pseudo Pauline letters is that they diverge from what we know of Paul's relationship uh, with women and leadership in the church. The Bible, the 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 big uh, scholarly word on this is that the Bible doesn't speak uh, univocally. It doesn't speak with one voice. It speaks with multiple voices because it's coming through humans trying to understand what God is doing in the world. And, uh, as we said earlier, sometimes, sometimes humans get it right. Sometimes humans get it wrong. Uh, welcome to be, welcome to being human. <laughs> welcome to this beautiful, amazing book that we call the Bible that sometimes gets it right. And sometimes gets it wrong. And who is our guide to how to interpret the Bible, our rabbi, Jesus, that's, that's our guide. So when Jesus says, uh, that, uh, when he goes to some of his opponents and he says to them, go learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, he is giving us interpretive principles of how to understand the Bible. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus here is quoting the prophet Hosea. He gets it from within. He's not going against 
his religious tradition. He gets it from within his religious tradition. That's where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill what the law is getting at, which is for Jesus, mercy, not sacrifice. It's like when Paul later on will say that uh, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You can find all kinds of justifications for all kinds of different things in the Bible. Uh, That's what Luke is getting at earlier. The Bible is full of contradictions. Uh, You can justify all kinds of different things. And people have justified all kinds of different things uh, by using the Bible. Jesus says mercy, not sacrifice. And what the bringing this all back together in one thread, (laughs) what the Southern Baptist Convention is doing is going against the words of Jesus by living into sacrificing our uh, siblings who identify as women, uh, silencing their voices so that they can't lead and teach and preach in the church. That is living by sacrifice, not by mercy. Going against the words of Jesus, going against Paul, going against the thrust of where scripture is leading us, which is to wash away these distinctions uh, because that's what Christ leads us to do. So thank you for being here, everybody. Thank you for your comments and your questions. Uh, And uh, we will do this all again next week. Uh, on One Question with Pastor Adam. You can keep up with all of the episodes of One Question with Pastor Adam uh, wherever you listen to uh, your podcasts. Uh, If you listen on iTunes, would love for you to rate uh, and uh, leave a comment. That would be fantastic. And uh, we will do this again live here on uh, the Pastor Adam Facebook page and the Clackamas United Church of Christ Facebook page uh, next Thursday at 11 o'clock Pacific. Until then, God be with you, friends. Bye-bye.